Well, I think, you know, one of the things that you sort of pointed to when you were talking about it, when you listen to, there's a lot of great true crime podcasts out there and there's, you know, a lot of great podcasts from all sorts of different perspectives. But one thing that I think you never really heard was a perspective that we have. I mean, from from the position of a prosecutor, there are a lot of sort of very defense friendly podcasts, but oftentimes prosecutors and it's part of it is just the nature of the job. Part of it is the rules a lot of prosecutors work under. We're not really good at talking in the press. That's not what we do. Defense attorneys, it's it's part of their entire thing, engaging with the press and, and sort of getting their side out there. And I love true crime and you'd listen to true crime and you would hear that perspective and it's an important perspective, but you were only hearing one side. And I just always thought that there was this huge opportunity out there to fill a void. That's Brett Talley an attorney and the co-host of the Prosecutors and the Legal Briefs podcast. I think can help people understand where our viewpoints come from. And also, here's the thing, the human experience can be incredibly lonely until you realize that there are so many more commonalities and there are things that divide us, right? I mean, Brett and I, it, it, like, just looking at us on the outside and knowing our backgrounds, we could, probably couldn't be two more different people. He is, like, my best friend. And if we didn't choose to, if we chose to only put ourselves into, you know, boxes that divided us, then we would miss out on a beautiful friendship, a beautiful work relationship, and like this amazing podcast experience that, you know, is is truly been a highlight um, uh, for, for both of us in our lives. And so I think we, th- there's nothing that you really can lose by being vulnerable. I have learned that even in the courtroom. A lot of people think that by hiding your vulnerability, you show strength, but I think it's the opposite. By showing vulnerability, you are are choosing to take the first step to extend out and to reach out into the void and say like, hey, life is hard. Let's go through this together. That's Alice LaCour, also an attorney and Brett's co-host on The Prosecutors and the Legal Briefs. Brett and Alice started the highly rated Prosecutors podcast back in May of 2020, only a few months after the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Brett grew up near Birmingham, Alabama, made his way to the University of Alabama, where he studied philosophy and history before going to and graduating from Harvard Law School. Brett started his career as a clerk in the Department of Justice and worked as a clerk for a federal judge before going into private practice and working as a writer on a political campaign before returning to government and working as a speechwriter for Ohio Senator Rob Portman. Following that, Brett took various legal positions with the state of Alabama and the Department of Justice. Brett is a natural storyteller, and he's the author of a nonfiction book on the paranormal history of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, several novels, and has contributed to several collections. One of his novels, That Which Should Not Be, was a finalist for the Bram Stoker Award, the annual award for the top horror novels. 
Alice grew up in Austin, Texas, the daughter of immigrants, and attended Washington Lee University in Lexington, Virginia, where she studied economics before attending Yale Law School. Alice began her career as a federal law clerk on the district and the appellate court levels before holding various positions as a trial attorney, as an advisor to senior Justice Department officials, and the criminal chief in a U.S. attorney's office. Alice is now a partner at a major law firm. Alice and Brett have both been involved in civil, criminal, and appellate litigation and bring a unique perspective to the true crime space, both in terms of seeing cases through the eyes of lawyers and as prosecutors. After years of talking about doing a podcast, The Prosecutors was born of Alice stopping sleeping after having a baby and finally having the time to start recording. They started The Prosecutors on their own, and it's grown into one of the top true crime podcasts in a short amount of time. In May of 2020, they started their second podcast, Legal Briefs, which explores the law and more current cases. Today, we're going to talk about the real life of being a prosecutor and an attorney, the role that the legal system and the rule of law play in upholding democracy, the myths and misconceptions around those roles, and about crime and the role that prosecutors play. Brett and Alice, I just wanted to thank you for joining to have this conversation with me and our listeners. And I I just want to tell you a little bit about how I first came across your podcast. It was during the, I wasn't much of a podcast listener period. And during the COVID pandemic, I, you know, how a lot of people like started working on their decks or getting dogs. I started walks and I would walk like and walk and walk and walk and that kind of uh, threw off my anxiety and I, I needed something to do. So I started listening to podcasts related to COVID and other topics. And what I, you know, I, I tripped across the Murder Sheep podcast and listened to some of their coverage of, you know, the Delphi murders with uh, the young girls who were on the trail on the bridge. And I came across you guys on an episode that you did the murder sheet. And it was really amazing for me because rarely, you know, as a reporter, I, you know, I, I got a chance when I was a reporter to talk to like, the chief assistant district attorney because they wanted to sort of push down a political message. Or I spoke to the spokesman or someone else, but rarely did I ever get to hear from the line appellate attorneys or the line prosecutors. And I just found your podcast and the discussions that you guys had to be thoughtful, yet fun, respectful of people. And you did a great job of explaining the way things work. So I grabbed the podcast. Um, I listened to a couple episodes on Delphi. And then I tripped across this great episode, which we can talk about, about Dyatlov Pass and in Russia. Listened to all of those episodes. And then I think I just downloaded everything I possibly could. But what I I think the thing that I found so powerful, A, your partnership, but also like your ability to simplify things for people, to be really thoughtful, to bring logic to bear. And the fact that, you know, 
one of the core pieces of it, I think you guys really understand people and are able to explain people and explain their, their, uh, from lots of different perspectives, from a compassionate approach. So I was hooked and I've become a giant advocate for your podcast. So I am, as you can imagine, I am just thrilled to be able to have you guys on. Well, thank you so much for, for all those kind words. We need to come on more often. so you can, uh... I was going to say, I'm not going to talk on this episode because I could just listen to you all day. <laughs> uh, I could become your new spokesman, maybe. There you go. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Um, you know, everything you said, it's, it's been such a great community. And Brett and I are just friends. Truly, we are friends first. And um, this project was a fun event for us to be able to hang out as friends. And the fact that people listen and people like you who, you know, we respect a lot, listen and like, <laughs> like it is just beyond our wildest dreams. Yeah. The, uh, I was going to ask you guys, what was it that um, originally inspired you to do uh, do a podcast? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that you sort of pointed to when you were talking about it, when you listen to, there's a lot of great true crime podcasts out there and there's, you know, a lot of great podcasts from all sorts of different perspectives. But one thing that I think you never really heard was a perspective that we have. I mean, from, from the position of a prosecutor, there are a lot of sort of very defense friendly podcasts, but oftentimes prosecutors and it's part of it is just the nature of the job. Part of it is the rules a lot of prosecutors work under we're not really good at talking in the press. That's not what we do. Defense attorneys, it's it's part of their entire thing, engaging with the press and, and sort of getting their side out there. And I love true crime and you'd listen to true crime and you would hear that perspective and it's an important perspective, but you were only hearing one side. And I just always thought that there was this huge opportunity out there to fill a void. There aren't that many voids in true crime. There are a whole lot of true crime podcasts, but th- this was a void. And basically, I badgered Alice until she finally agreed to do it. <laughs> and that's completely accurate. <laughs> and Alice, I, I, yo, go on. No, no, go ahead, Jason. <laughs> I just, I was going to say, I mentioned in the intro that uh, it was because you couldn't sleep because you had a child. But what, what, what really attracted you to this? I really couldn't sleep. <laughs> no. uh, so, so Brett and I have worked several jobs together and, you know, we were prosecuting together, shared a wall at the office and spent all of our time talking about our cases. You know, if you find a work friend like that who you can really have these amazing intellectual debates with about your work, I mean, it's so incredibly fulfilling. Still one of like the best work relationships I could ever imagine. And naturally, because we're you know curious about all sorts of things we would also talk about cases that we weren't prosecuting that was like out in the news, except I, you know, would Brett and I would just talk about them. And he was like, we should talk about this, like, and record it. And I was like, that sounds like a nightmare. I don't want to hear my voice um, <laughs> ever. And and he he really asked me, I don't know, Brett, more than a year, right? I, it was a quite a long time. And I just kept, I thought he was joking. And I said, no. And I'm so glad that in my sleep deprivation, sleep deprivation does have to do with it, uh, with a newborn, I said yes, because I just thought, why not? You know, what could what could be more busy than this time in my life? Um, and I'm so glad that I did say yes. Oh, that's awesome. Are you guys um, at all surprised by some of the reaction that you've gotten to it? I know when I was listening to some of your uh, some of your episodes, uh, where you on the anniversary of the podcast, where you talk about how you know, you didn't expect a lot of listeners, but you flew to the top of the true crime 
charts, which is highly competitive space uh, to be in. Were you guys surprised by that? Did you sort of think you would be talking to yourself, your family, and a handful of colleagues? Or did you kind of know that it would take off? Well, it's kind of funny. When we first started doing it, we didn't tell anybody that we knew. <laughs> so, so we did we actually had no expectation that we would be talking to our colleagues or our family we just sort of we decided basically we're going to do this you know we've got we had to jump through some hoops to get permission to do it because as i said you know being prosecutors it's not what you normally do and there it was sort of a weird thing you know people looked at us funny when we said hey we would like to do this can we get permission to do this and we initially sort of just went into it with like, look, we're just going to, we're going to basically not going to tell anybody else that we know we got permission from our bosses. We'll just keep it low key. And if it, if nobody listens, we can just stop doing it, delete everything. And nobody will ever know we did it. Right. <laughs> you won't have to worry. Right? Yeah. And we, you know, we didn't do any advertising or do anything. We basically just started recording episodes and kind of went from there. And you know, I, you know, I think it was just one of those things where, like I said, there was that gap and we were fortunate enough to be the ones who filled it. And I think that had a huge effect because people were hearing something they'd never heard before. They were hearing something different. And it was very much a word of mouth and still is very much a word of mouth thing. Just people telling their friends to listen to it. And I knew that we would get and we saw some of this in the beginning. There was some initial, like, why would we want to hear prosecutors? Prosecutors are all evil, terrible people. You know, <laughs> because mm-hmm. a lot of people who listen to true crime, they've, they've listened to so many sort of, you know, unjust convictions, wrongful convictions that they really do have this conception of prosecutors just want to win. They just want to put people in prison. They don't care whether they're guilty or not they don't care whether or not the victims actually get justice that's just what they want to do and that was another thing we wanted to point push back on and we've attempted to do that just by sort of explaining the way things work not you know we're not trying to be you know like spokespeople for how great the prosecutors of the world are but just sort of hey look this is how the system works this is what we do this is what we look at you know those decisions that you think are unusual here's everything that went into that You've never heard that before. Like, why'd they do that? Why'd they do this? And I would like to think that 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 was something people appreciated and they wanted to hear more of. And that was one of the reasons that people did respond so positively to the show so quickly. Yeah. I I didn't really think about that point, but just thinking about my experience that most of what I've learned about prosecutors has been outside looking in, right? Not really the prosecutor's perspective, but kind of having to surmise, right, because prosecutors don't get rewarded for talking to everyone, having to surmise what their motivations or their reasons are. But I remember my brother's also, he's a corporate attorney, but he once made a really good point to me while he was in, I think it was while he was in law school, he said, Jason, you have to remember that the prosecutors also have an obligation toward justice that goes beyond convicting the person. You know, they're in a position where they have the responsibility, yes, to prosecute cases, but the real responsibility is toward justice. And I thought it was really kind of an interesting perspective, you know, coming from someone who's used to thinking of the defense attorney as the one who is there to sort of defend the Constitution and the rights of people, but the prosecutors also, am I right, play a role in that? 
Yeah, absolutely, Jason. That's a great point um, that, you know, most of, uh, not most, a lot of what prosecutors do will never see the day of light, light of day, <laughs> will never see the light Either. of day. Uh, and that's because, you know, we have the duty to not only bring cases that we think um, rise to the level of reasonable doubt, but we also have to not prosecute cases um, that do not reach that level. And many investigations lead to just that outcome, but you do not make those public. You cannot make those public. And those are absolutely the two things that we have to hold simultaneously. It just happens that cases only become public once charges are brought. And so you only see kind of the one side, but at the exact same time that we're investigating cases, many cases, you know, we may even bring to the grand jury and have investigations happen and decide, you know, what, we will not bring these charges because we don't have the requisite um, burden of proof to be able to bring it. Um, and that is something that, again, the public doesn't see. And so by being able to talk about it, I think people um, saw it for the first time. And and we were able to, again, talk about cases detached because we don't talk about cases that we we work on. We can't do that. And by kind of giving a view into what other prosecutors are thinking about, what factors they're considering is, I think, good for the entire the entire judiciary, right? The entire ju justice system, yep. because um, we are all part of that justice system. We've said that time and time again. You know, the Constitution envisions for criminal charges that you have a right to a jury trial, jury of your peers. And because of that, every single one of us here in America where, where we practice does have a role to play in the justice system, whether or not you are sitting in that specific jury pool, because at some point you are the pool from which we draw on. And so what Brett and I have always thought of is there's so much misinformation out there, not necessarily because it comes from a place of malice, but because there's no one else educating um, from kind of our, our perspective. And if we can kind of help educate something that all of us should know, it's like big basic civics lessons, I think our justice system and our our you know society writ large is better for it if we can all think independently. We really don't come in with a pers perspective, right? We've always said this to our fans, disagree with us. We love that. We love good, respectful debate. That is what we do for a living. We don't care if you disagree with us, but tell us the reasons why you disagree with us. If we can teach you to think critically, then awesome. And here's the thing. You probably already know how to think critically, but a lot of the news consumption, social media consumption, the way it's channeled these days actually tells you to just follow the group as opposed to think critically yep. about why you believe what you believe. That makes a lot of sense. I, you know, it's something I was just thinking about what you were, what you were saying there. And I, I want to make a confession. I, I don't think I've ever said this to you guys, but I've said it to other people um, about you. And this sort of ties to the point that you were making about educating people about prosecutors. But I used to say to people, and I was dead serious, I can never be on a criminal tri trial jury. And I said that the reason why I can't be on a criminal trial jury is because I've seen so many bad prosecutors. And... Two things I really learned in your podcast, A, there are good prosecutors, right? They're good people. But so much of what I, as somebody who is educated about uh, the law and the criminal justice system, 
so much of what I saw from the outside was clearly misconceptions. So I, you know, I'm back in the jury pool because of you guys. So. Wow. <laughs> That's actually, whoa, that's huge. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, and I, and I, I think it's to your point, right. And I don't think it's just my experience as a reporter, but what gets covered is, you know, in, in the news, what gets covered, you know, dog bites, man doesn't get covered, man bites dog. So we pay attention to the cases where something has gone terribly wrong. We pay attention, you know, and, and, I think you guys would probably agree there are are some cases where clearly people are innocent or there have been problematic prosecutions. And I know you guys have done a couple episodes on that or even episodes where there were convictions and you had problems with the way the prosecutors handled things. So I think to your point, Alice, we don't really get exposed to the positive just by the way our media and our social media and all those other things work. And I think I think one of the problems, I mean, there's a lot of problems. There's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Part of it is sort of the plane crash problem, right? I mean, everybody remembers the plane crashes. They don't remember that plane travel is the safest form of travel, right? Because when things go horribly wrong, they go horribly wrong, and that that's what you're going to focus on, and that's what you're going to remember. The other problem is it is such a complex thing. And, and in, in, I don't know if maybe it's always been this way, but certainly in our society today, sort of the bite-sized narratives of today, we want everything to be simple. We want everything to be simple and black and white and to fit neatly into sort of our socio-political views, right? I mean, that's the way mm-hmm. we want it to be. And the justice system in particular is so incredibly complex. And it is entirely, you know, I mean, most things are like this, but the justice system in a way that is just is just so it is so purely human driven everything about it is people and so prosecutors there are bad prosecutors because there are some people who are in those jobs who shouldn't be in them the problem is you know people want to talk about how to fix that and how to the system is broken when the system is not really broken it's just whatever system you create as long as it's made up of people there are going to be places where it breaks down and i think there's an example of this that just happened. So we hear people say all the time, you know, it's too hard to undo a conviction and it's too easy to convict innocent people. And, you know, better a hundred guilty men go free than one innocent man, man spend any time in prison. And then you have the Alyssa attorney case, right? You have right. the attorney case where everybody's emotions are, we need to convict this guy. Right. And yeah. it goes through the process and the judge enters a judgment of acquittal, which is a rare thing. But if the prosecution doesn't meet its burden under the Constitution, that is what they are required to do. And everybody's up in arms. And we get all these these tweets. What can be done? Can he ever be tried again? What if they find more evidence? Can they can they prosecute him on something else? And, and I'm explaining why that can't be. And I'm also thinking in the back of my head, you know, this is why this is so difficult. Because on the one mm-hmm. hand, you're wanting to tear down the system and, and rebuild it in a way to ensure that innocent people don't go to prison. But on the other hand, you're outraged that the justice system, unfortunately, if you believe he's guilty, worked exactly the way it was supposed to, to protect the rights of the accused and acquitted this person. And there is no easy black and white answer to many of the problems that we have in the justice system because they are so deeply human. Human. Yeah, no. I mean, by the very nature of the way that You know, we have juries, uh, you know, be the triers of fact and judges, law, all of it, you know, all of it is 
subjective, right? You try to create objective outlines. It's it's subjective and they're bad actors or wrong actors in the mix. And it, just that, that case that you were talking about, the Alyssa Turney case, that was her father, Michael Turney, was stepfather, right? Was accused of killing her, but she just disappeared, right? Disappeared in Arizona. Correct. Yeah. And he was the last person to see her. I, you know, my impression was the prosecution did a good job of proving he was a bad human being, but obviously the judge didn't feel uh, he met the burden. And it is kind of interesting to watch the social media reaction that it's often the same people who are yelling very loudly about innocent people in prison are also at the same time yelling about him being acquitted by the judge. So um, I, and I know that there's uh, there's some crossover and probably separate camps, but it it really sort of makes me wonder: is the job of sometimes being in the chair of a prosecutor a thankless job? Like he can't win with the public? Oh, that's a good question. I I, I mean, look most most prosecutors go to work every day and do their job. Nobody even notices. You know, it's it's rare that you have a an Alex Murdoch case, right? <laughs> and, right. And you saw how that went. I mean, Thank those God. prosecutors. Yeah, exactly. Those prosecutors were getting raked over the coals every day. Alice and I are defending them because we thought they were doing a good job. They then win, and then they're the greatest thing in the world, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so it's like a lot of things. The outcome really matters uh, to a lot of people. But look, I will say this: I think. I don't think it's a thankless job because there are there are many times where number one, when you have victims and you get justice for those people, or they get to tell their story for the first time on the stand, or someone believed them, you know, I mean, there's not there's not gonna be big trumpeting headlines about that, but that's fine. You know, that's not why we, we do it. And I will tell you, there are times where we are able to to see somebody's life turned around. I realize people people find this you know to be difficult to believe, but one of the purposes of incarceration is rehabilitation. And you know, I have seen cases and been involved in cases where people got really long sentences, served half of them had obviously like become sort of pillars of their community in their prison, turn their lives mm-hmm. around, you know, and, and I was able to work out something where they didn't have to serve the rest of that time. They were able to leave and start a new life. And, and one of the guys I'm thinking about, you know, he now like owns a business and he hires mm-hmm. ex convicts and he's like, you know, a pillar of his, his now out of prison community. And I think he would tell you that when he was put in prison, the path that he was on was one that was going to end up, he was going to be either be dead or at some point would get a prison sentence that he would never get out of. Mm. And if you looked at his history, I mean, going all the way back to when he was like 13 years old, you know, he was involved in violence and, and all sorts of stuff. And that is really, I mean, you talk about something that sort of, as I think I even said in the courtroom, it's rare that everybody's on the same side, you know, everybody's rooting for the same thing to happen. And I think, it is thankless if what you're looking for is praise from the outside. But mm. I think day to day, it is really one of the most fulfilling jobs you can have. And there's bad days. Don't get me wrong. There are. 
<laughs> but I think that's true probably of anything anybody does. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, uh, thankless is is if you're looking for outside praise, you're not going to get that basically as an attorney. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're on defense or prosecution. Um, but one of the great things about being a prosecutor is that it's an incredibly human job, right? You are constantly talking to people whose lives have been utterly upended. You know, if you are a witness or uh, a target, or if you have anything that touches a criminal uh, case, it is probably the largest deal in your life at that time, right? I, yeah. I've never lost sight of that. Um, you know, it is it is good, bad, whatever you want to call it. It is probably all consuming. If it is your your son who is on trial, if it if you are a victim, if you are just a witness to something horrendous, you know, at least I really never lose sight of that. And so every time I interact with someone that has to do with one of my cases, whether it's the agents or the the witnesses or the the defendant, I recognize that I am playing a very important role and probably one of the most important times in this person's life. And that is a huge honor and privilege because how I do it could deeply affect not just the person sitting in front of me, but you know, their families and, and their communities and it had ramifications far beyond what I can see. And that's incredibly humbling. And, and that's why, you know, it, it, you do have to have the right, right mindset to be in this job because you are not going in to ever be thanked. You know, most people, once they're done with a, a the case, whether it's they, they, they are their witness or they've been, you know, convicted if they're a defendant, they're not going to write you, you know, years from now and be like, I remember you from this. For the most part, they never want to relive this chapter of their life. And that's okay. Um, and so there's not outside validation except a job done right when I know that I have, you know, vindicated this victim's rights or a very dangerous person can no longer continue to do the horrendous things that they have done for a very long time before they were able to be stopped with this prosecution, that sort of thing. And so like Brett said, it, it really is an incredibly fulfilling duty because you are not doing it on behalf of yourself. You really are doing it on behalf of the public. Right. That reminds me actually of a story that I was recently involved with during the um, pandemic. We had a friend who was out in, let's say, Appalachia, and they were living in a house and it was a woman with her uh, girlfriend. They were living in a house together and my friend had no idea that her girlfriend and her girlfriend's family was running this giant meth operation. They apparently had meth in the ceiling and other places like that. A state and federal task force raided the house, arrested everyone in there. My vibe from beginning, the beginning of it, was that they really viewed her as a witness. But even though like all the signs pointed to her being a witness, it was nerve-wracking. It was anxiety-producing. Her life froze completely. And it was a very difficult process until the moment so the um, federal prosecutor became more involved in the case. And they sat down and they had um, a, a session with her where they were interviewing her. And she was being as cooperative as possible. And as she was walking, and this was the most important moment for her, as her interview was done and she was walking outside, the prosecutor turned to her and said, we don't think you did anything. And that made the complete difference. We were able to help her then buy a house, get her life started. She went and got a job and she wasn't getting a job, going out and getting a job because she was just afraid of like, what's the point? She worked in childcare. 
of me bonding with these kids. And then all of a sudden I'm going to get taken away to go. And it was just that those, you know, those short brief words from the prosecutor and, you know, she ended up being a witness, but it was the biggest thing in her life. And it was derailing her life until that moment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, we always talk about bedside manner for doctors, but I think it's incredibly important to have good, you know, bedside manner as an attorney and as a prosecutor. Just because you're a prosecutor doesn't mean you're a monster. You may be the one, you know, that others view as bringing the most stressful situation into their lives, but it doesn't mean that you're not human as well and you can't recognize the humanness in everyone involved. From your, just thinking of your perspective, thinking a little bit about you know, the general space, right? You're, ex- you're inhabiting the space of being prosecutors. You're also inhabiting the space of being in true crime and true crime itself, right? Has been taking a lot of criticism lately with lots of debates about, you know, the ethics, whether it should be victim centered. There are lots of battles between, you know, should it be journalistic? Should it be an opinion base? And, I'm, and, and you were kind of alluding at this idea. I think you both were that, a lot of things have sort of led to, you know, I think about the case at the University of Idaho where the four college roommates were killed, or I think of some other cases. It can lead to some prejudgment and other challenges. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are from your perspective about, you know, how the true crime space can add value and where it can sort of be unhelpful and if there's a roadmap for that. Well, I mean, I think it's funny that people act like the the media did not sensationalize crime before true crime came along, <laughs> you know, like as if it's true crime podcasters who are sitting outside of the the house in Idaho, you know, recording, right? And not, you know, certain famous people who will remain unnamed <laughs> who are involved in, in the mainstream media, who, right? Who sit at tables in front of the house, maybe. Yeah, and, and look. I really don't like the ethics and true crime conversation because number one, I I don't like when people try and tell other people what to listen to or what to watch. It just gives me the heebie jeebies. I just don't like it. And the other thing is I feel like it, it ignores the fact that to me, for instance, you know, we talk a lot about how the focus of so much media when it comes to crime, you know, if you're a young pretty white girl who goes missing, there's going to be all sorts of focus on you. Right. And, and that is a criticism that people often have of media coverage in general. To me, that's a mainstream media problem. If you want to see people who are covering, you know, missing and murdered indigenous women or, you know, people of color or sex workers. I mean, if you want to see people who are covering those cases and are digging into them and trying to get justice for them, you're much more likely to see that in a true crime podcast with two ladies drinking wine than you are on CNN. And that's just a fact. So are there sort of, you know, people who do things that aren't ethical? Yes, absolutely. We see it all the time. And a lot of times the reaction of the true crime community to those people is very negative. There was an example just recently of a lady who, you know, for whatever reason decided it was a good idea to get some autopsy photos of a child who'd been murdered and put those on her YouTube page behind a paywall. And the, the, the reaction was outrage. And it was outrage from the members of the true crime community. So to me, I think a lot of this is, number one, misguided, misdirected, and overblown. I think there is sort of a natural ethic in true crime. 
and I and I think that the vast majority of people who are doing true crime stuff care deeply about victims and and more than anything want to help victims. I mean, look at Delphi and, and the the community support of the family in Delphi. I mean, I think I think true crime a lot of times is doing a great job of doing exactly that, focusing on victims, trying to focus on justice and trying to avoid some of the sensationalism that you often see, frankly, in mainstream media. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, from the very beginning, the the judicial system was meant to be open to the public, right? Um, it's when things happen under, you know, the, the dark of night is when things go wrong. And so we always envisioned that courtrooms were supposed to be open, that anyone could sit in. You can go into any courtroom unless it's sealed. And usually it's a high bar to be sealed. The default is for courtrooms to be open, whether it's a civil case or a criminal case, um, for the public to, to see what their judiciary is doing. It's one of the three branches of government. And, you know, I think there's always been a natural draw to understand um, how one of us, right? It's a human question of how we are capable of doing things that should be the unthinkable. And I think it's a very important question because it's understanding our humanity. It's, you know, the existential question. And kind of like Brett said, you know, everyone kind of approaches it maybe slightly differently, but that that's partly why I'm not surprised at all that there is an interest in the true crime space. And it's not also something that just happened in the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. I mean, this is this is a tale as old as time. And more often than not, you know, we will we will have many of our listeners write to us about a case that is near and dear to their heart because it's a family member, because it's someone they knew asking for for us to cover or someone someone else to cover so that their their case, which is one of unfortunately many, 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 can get the light of day so that someone can care about it and listen about it. And, you know, there are just too many cases uh, for, say, one jurisdiction to be able to, you know, investigate all of them. And sometimes it is the attention of those loved ones who keep it top of mind and and bring the attention that is needed um, to be able to fully investigate that case and hopefully lead to a successful prosecution if that's the direction that it takes. That, that reminds me of the episode you guys did. I think this is very, very early on, probably in your first year. Darley um, Routier. Yeah, that was the, I, I forget what state that was in, but it was somewhere in New England and she was driving her car erratically. And I think uh, her son's. Okay, yeah, Diane. Diane. Yeah, Darley Routier is a, a mom oh, in Texas. Yeah. Okay, mom in Texas, right? Diane, what was Di- her last name? Diane Schuler. Diane Schuler. Diane Schuler. It made me. I remember when I listened to this uh, that episode, just thinking about how tragic that was, and I, I kind of stopped myself in the middle of it, thinking like, why am I interested in this? Like, why? Why am I interested in these true crime stories? And I spent a, a couple moments thinking about it, and I realized it's exactly what you were saying. Alice, it's that I think we have a deep need to understand how, you know, both the victim and, you know, the person who does something wrong end up on this collision course. It helps us understand the world around us. And I think, I I mean, it gives us something of real value. And I know there, there is sensationalism, there are ethical issues, but I think it's sort of like a philosophical or fundamental need is behind all of that. Would you guys agree with that? 
Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing we heard during the Alec Murdoch trial when we covered it was I cannot get over the fact that a father, a, a seemingly loving father could kill his own son. Right. Because that is kind of one of those laws of nature um, that a parent should only love and protect their offspring. But how can it be that we exist in a, in a world where it is possible for all external signs to point to everything is fine for that for that father to be able to kill his own offspring in just cold blood? Right. That is a that is a question I think that shook people to their very cores because all of us know parents, our parents have parents. And it's kind of the the basis of how we understand all relationships around us. And to have that core relationship in your life that orders your entire universe be shaken is essentially an existential crisis. And I, I partly think that's why so many people were so drawn to that case um, and, and why we got so many messages along those lines of, I, I don't want to live in a world where a father can do that to their own child. But that, that is a world that we live in. And for the most part, we suspend the knowledge that that kind of world exists because we can't go about our lives knowing all the chaos that can exist around us, right? That's just how our brains work. We right. kind of suspend a lot of the chaos to fully exist in the world that we are because our you know we just don't have the capacity to process all the chaos. But when one of these cases kind of thrusts in front of you where you cannot ignore the chaos, where you cannot um, suspend, you know, that sort of chaos in your life and you have to deal with it face on, it's it's almost as if you're having to deal with it yourself, even though you're processing a very important question through someone else's case. I remember something both of you said about the Alec Murdoch case it, that struck me in one of your episodes. You said you both believed he loved his son. And I thought that was just a really kind of interesting and different take in the sense that you believed at the same time he probably did it right he's the guy yeah but yes he can also love his son and that's a kind of cognitive dissonance i guess maybe you guys as prosecutors it's not cognitive dissonance for you all but for the rest of us it can be a little hard to understand how those two things because it's easy for the rest of us right the bad guy's a monster right the victim is perfect right, right. And, and we know those things are not are, are rarely true i guess and i think i think both of those things are worth disabusing people of and we talk about this sometimes in our our episodes like we'll talk about the things about the victim the victimology the things that were going on in their lives that put them in a situation where a monster well not a monster but as someone could take advantage of them. And there is what I think is a good thing in true crime, a focus on not victim blaming. And I think that's important, but I don't, but I, but you can take that too far when it is every, you know, every victim lights up the room and you almost turn it into a, those are the victims that we really care about, right? Mm -hmm. Not the ones who have, like all of us do flaws and faults that, our problems, but don't justify whatever happened to us. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is, is the monster. Are there monsters out there? Yes. I mean, I, I think there absolutely are. And I think you see cases uh, of those, but I think they're pretty rare. I think the average person who's involved in crime, even really horrible ones, unfortunately, and this can be scary, is just like you or me. And there is just something in their life that for whatever reason leads them to do the thing they did. Alec Murdoch is a great example of that. I think a lot of people want to believe you could only do something like that out of hate. 
he 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 must have hated his wife and hated his son to do that. And I just I think when you look at the facts of the case, you'll realize no, that's not true. His justification that he gave to himself is a warped one, and it's one that from the outside is so obviously wrong that you know you can, mm-hmm. you can recognize that. But as I've said before, in most people's mind, most criminals' minds, everything they do makes sense. It's all rational to them. In the world that they are living in, this is a rational decision they're making, even if it's a hard decision. And you know, we went through in a lot of episodes on that what we think led him to that place where that was the rational thing for him to do was murder his wife and his child. But I think in that moment, he thought that was his only choice. And I think part of him even thought he was doing them a favor in some ways. Right. right. And that's a warped thing, but I think it's reality. And yeah, I think, I think reminding people of that's important because it's not just about, you know, telling the story, but it's also in your own life. I mean, you can see, and, and we have people, listeners who reach out to us and say this kind of stuff all the time. Sometimes you can see in your own life some of the things that went on in these cases, and it can be a warning sign for you and sort of a wake up call. And and that's a scary thought. But just, you know, there are a lot of people out there who who were true crime fans before they became true crime victims, you know, Mm. and I think that I think that is an important part. But let me also say this. I think justice for victims is important. I think educating people is important. I think having a better understanding is important. But I think something you said is very true. True crime is deeply human. And it is, as Alice said, as old as time. And we don't shy away from the fact this is entertainment and it is entertaining and people enjoy it in the same way they enjoy horror movies or murder mysteries, right? They enjoy the mystery of it. They enjoy unraveling a mystery, figuring things out, sort of, you know, putting the pieces together, looking at the evidence, lining things up. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And we always tell people that, like, don't don't be ashamed of the fact that you enjoy true crime because it is so human and you can say you shouldn't all day long, but, but it is in human nature to be fascinated by some of this sort of like the worst, the worst of humanity. And it has always been that way. And it's not just true crime that, that sort of shows you that. Right. From Elizabeth Bathroy to Jack the Ripper to anything today, we've always been fascinated about it. That, that reminds me of something else that you guys mentioned. I obviously don't have access to your inbox. So, do I, you know, one of the things that I find nice about your podcast is, you know, when the absurd thing happens or when, you know, something ridiculous, you guys are able to like laugh at it and make it jovial and make it light, which is a kind of interesting thing because I run into a lot of podcasts, true crime podcasts that are just absolutely serious about everything. But how did, did you guys intentionally decide to take that approach? Is it just naturally your personalities? Come on. <laughs> you can't put sucks. Alice and I on anything and us not laugh. I mean, I think part of it is it's, you know, Brett and I have seen probably the darkest of humanity you can ever imagine. I still sometimes like categorize it away and I, I, I can't believe that I have seen some of the, the darkest things I will ever see in life. And we've seen real darkness, right? And bad reviews and people not liking our music is not the darkest of life. And so we're not <laughs> pretending to laugh about it. It's really like, wow, we have seen like as dark when you think that there can be nothing darker in life. And this is not it. And you know what? I am going to enjoy the joyful things in life because there is light. Thank goodness the dark is not the end, right? The morning always comes. 
And I'm part of, you know, being able to persist in this job, but by this job, I mean podcasting <laughs> and also uh, being a lawyer in general is to be able to recognize the difference between real, real darkness and everything else that, you know what, if you don't laugh, then then, you know, what, what's the point? And, mm. and so truly, I think Brett and I just, we just have a lot of fun with each other and it's easier to laugh when you have a friend to laugh with. Um, uh, but I think it's a good reminder that not everything has to be taken super seriously. We can take our job seriously and we can take the stories that we tell seriously. We can take victims seriously. But the fact that maybe interspersed in those conversations, we are able to laugh at the things that we can laugh about because there's so much in life and so much in true crime that is not funny whatsoever, then take those moments. And that does not in any way diminish the seriousness of what we are discussing. In fact, I think it shows the, the good balance that everyone must have in how they view their life, not just in, say, true crime or not just in your life. Right. And, and, and it, you know, it's probably worth saying, never heard you guys laugh when it comes to a victim or a crime. Usually it's about someone's absurd theory of the crime that you're, that you're getting a good chuckle out of. Um, you know, so so that it, it, it's it's less intentional than it's just your natural personalities. Is that fair, Brett? I mean, I think that's absolutely fair. And. And that's the way we we've always approached the show. I mean, we're just being ourselves. You know, there there is no, you know, we're not playing characters on this show. And as Alice said, we can be talking about really dark subject matter. I don't think that means you have to be morose the whole time that you're talking about it. As you said, like we're not laughing at terrible things that happen to people, and we're not laughing at victims. But there are absurd things in cases. Number one and number two. Alice and I do things, we mess up and we do things that are funny and we're going to laugh at that. It's like, I remember one time there was a case and at the beginning I said, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. And somebody in a comment was like, I can't believe you would say people are going to enjoy a case about murder. And I responded, why are you listening to this if you don't enjoy it? Like if you're not, if you're not enjoying listening to this, you need to stop because it's not bringing you joy and life is too short to be miserable all the time. And that's sort of our approach to it. Like we are approaching these cases seriously and we put a lot of effort into them and we want to be respectful, but our personalities are going to come through and we're not going to just, you know, sound like we're miserable the whole time that we're talking about dark subjects. Yeah. And people probably wouldn't be listening if you sounded miserable all the time, which actually <laughs> brings me to another point. I was going to ask you about your process and just, throw out an example for me. So I had read a bunch of stories, not probably, I was not obsessed with this case at all, but I'd read a couple stories on um, the case of Moore Murray, who was a young college student, I think at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, who went missing in Vermont. And there's a lot of weirdness and rabbit holes and other stuff around that case. But I had read some mainstream news articles on that. Uh, yeah, it was it was interesting to me, but I was not one of those people who fell over for it. But when I listened to your episodes, I think it was like what was it, four or five episodes on it. It was the first time I really understood how I guess weird the case was and why it attracted so many people to it. So I was going to ask just a little bit about what is your process for telling stories? Because I know on legal briefs, you guys often the second podcast you interview people on your main pro podcast, you're often telling us, telling your listeners uh, a story. How, what is the process of sort of like 
pulling that together, the writing, the research, and how you tell the stories. Well, Maura Murray is probably not a great example just because I've been obsessed with that case for so long. So, was, <laughs> you know, I basically was like, Alice, this is what we're doing. <laughs> but, you know, I think the one of the advantages we have, and Alice talks about this a lot, so I don't want to steal all her thunder, is lawyers have to be good storytellers, particularly if you're a litigator. If you're going to stand up in front of really a judge, a jury, I mean, whatever, and put facts together in a convincing way, in a way that's engaging. You have to be a good storyteller. So I think some of that comes through in in the show. But, I mean, we have a structure that we've used since the first episode, and, and we always use it. And it really, it starts with a timeline. I think Alice and I both agree. That is, it's just the most important thing. And and I will say this, we we stick to that timeline, even though there are cases where the timeline ruins the mystery. And, and mm. sometimes if you listen to other podcasts, and I'm not being critical of them, but if you listen to other podcasts, they will obscure the timeline until sort of the end because they know once they sort of lay everything out and you see it, you'll be like, oh, okay, I, I see exactly what the thing is. So usually the way we do it is we do the timeline. We don't try and hide the ball. We give you a timeline and then we sort of back up and go through sort of the big pieces of evidence. And then we always we like to give a conclusion. And this bothers some people. I don't really understand, but we always like to give a theory. We like to give the theories that are out there. But then we also like to say, hey, this is what we think happened. And and I think people people have gravitated to that. And I think one of the reasons is just I think that's a good way to, to tell a story, sort of orient people to time and place and then sort of slowly give them the details and build up to what you think uh, what you think the answer is. So they know the mystery by the end, and they're having in their own mind, they're starting to form their own opinions. You know, they're starting to have their own ideas. And, you know, I think at the end, when you give them your opinion, it's, it's really edifying for them because either they're like, yes, I was right all along, they agree with me, or they can be like, no, that's crazy. You're completely wrong. Here's all the reasons why. And I think it works out pretty well to to get people engaged in the storytelling. Have you guys ever disagreed on the case? <laughs> Wait, more Murray. Yes, <laughs> that is one. So, so, you know, people ask us that a lot. And, and part of it is that unlike um, the soundbite world of, you know, social media today, we don't arrive at our conclusions with like, a OK, on the count of three, you know, say yes or no. One, two, three. Absolutely not. The f- reason, you know, we're so long winded and the reason that we have multi-part episodes is because it takes hours and hours of us talking with each other as we refine kind of where we're getting with our conclusion, with our theories. We don't share our theories with each other ahead of time ever. Mm. Right. I mean, we we read um, primary sources. We read trial transcripts. We, you know, we try to consume all there is firsthand from the cases, not just relying on what other people have covered, because you're going to cover it with, you know, your viewpoint. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there's also a very important, you know, research tactic, which everyone should know and learn in school is to go to the primary sources. And from those sources kind of create um, your impressions of it. And, and Brett and I talking on the podcast, that's really us, right? That's how we actually do our real cases in real life Mm. as well. It is a back and forth, you build a timeline, you Ask questions about things that stick out that don't seem to be rational. Why would this happen? Why would anyone do something like that? You know, we talk about Occam's razor a lot because Occam's razor is real life as well. If we have a real case in front of us, these are the questions we'd be asking. And so Mm. the reason our conclusions are often pretty close to each other is because we've actually spent 
what, five, six, seven hours, depends how many episodes you have on a particular case, kind of refining and challenging and debating and talking about all the different factors that are going into the case. And it's not that we have to agree with each other. It's that it's so much more nuanced than a yes or no answer. And we've spent so much time pouring through the records and pouring through the different aspects and hearing, you know, I I may have a point of view, but as Brett's asking questions, he's bringing up things that I never thought about before. And it's forcing me to kind of pivot and look at it from a different viewpoint. And we are doing that continuously, continuously, continuously until the very end. And so that's why I think a lot of our listeners end up agreeing with us. I don't think it's necessarily because we get it right all the time. I think a lot of it is that they're along for the discussion and they at least understand where we're coming from. They may disagree with the ultimate um, theory, but they we are not um, we're not hiding the ball at all on how we're thinking. I want mm-hmm. to explain to you why I've reached the conclusion that I have. And that is something that's really missing from just general you know, discussion and dialogue writ large, not just in true crime, but like in our society today. And by walking people through our thinking process, mm-hmm. I think people begin to at least understand where we're coming from. And then they can ask really good questions that challenge our conclusions because they know exactly what went into that conclusion. It's kind of a model for maybe the way that we should be having broader discussions about issues in general. And it's kind of It's also interesting. I never really thought about it from the perspective of the way that you guys do the podcast itself is exactly the way you would need to examine or explore a case. You've got to come to some conclusion or some with all those caveats, right? Like about what's missing or what you. What we you, do, though. You you either close out an investigation and don't bring charges, or you move forward in the, with the with charges, right? So you're right about that, and. You know, the reason it comes off so easily, you know, recently we've been doing more live recordings and then we get off topic because we just get so excited seeing so many people and want to answer their their chats. But when when we record, we press record and what you hear on the podcast is basically everything we record. Right. We're not really at we edit out, you know, maybe where we um, stumbled on words, but we're not like trying to splice together some brilliant argument. What you hear on the podcast is how we are talking and the flow of how we are talking to each other, because that's actually how we talk in our legal professions as well. That's kind of one of the things I was going to ask you, I was sort of thinking about that, that model and that approach. So that is something you would normally do if you're working on a case together, you bounce it off each other, you do your research. I'm just curious, what is the day-to-day sort of life of a trial, you know, a criminal trial attorney or an appellate attorney doing that kind of work, because I know you've done both, because I think a lot of us probably have a lot of misconceptions about what you all do on a daily basis. Well, I think some of it depends on exactly what you're doing, and some of it depends on exactly what kind of case it is. You know, Alice and I, one case we like to talk about was uh, it was our, our biggest case that we worked on together ended up in a month long trial and like a two year long investigation. And that one was much more sort of what you think of and, and maybe even what you see on television where the investigation's ongoing. You know, we're working with with our agents, you know, figuring out things, going through documents, talking to witnesses, trying to put together what happened and when it happened and how it happened and eventually moving to a point where we could put together an indictment and figuring out who the bad guys were and who the, who the sort of innocent bystanders, like your friend, for instance, you know, she's sucked into this, but she's not really part of it. Figuring out who those people are, removing those people. 
and then you know going forward with the indictment, eventually going to trial and doing it. That I think is in most people's minds the way it works. In reality, usually with a lot of cases, it's much more sort of there's an investigation, and at some point someone comes to you and says, "Hey, I've got this case. Here's basically what's going on. Here's what we think. Here's everything we have. Take a look at this." tell us what else you need. And you, then you get a file and you're going through it and you're looking at the evidence and maybe, you know, maybe you're listening to some recordings or you're reading witness interviews and all that kind of stuff. And then you're going back to them and saying, Hey, I think we got this kind of case, but you're missing these pieces. Let's see if we can figure that out. And you're sort of working to build the case and fill in the holes with that, you know, that case to move it to a point where you can actually take it to trial. If you do appellate work, I do a lot of appellate work. You know, that's the, that's sort of, it can be frustrating because a lot of the mistakes, if they've been made, they've already been made. Right. And so you get, mm-hmm. you get the file and you see the problems and then you're having to figure out, is this something we can overcome? Is this something that maybe the law needs to change? Is it something where this is a fundamental mistake and we need to just confess error, which is something you can mm-hmm. do as well. Going back to that whole notion of as a prosecutor, you know, you're always supposed to be looking for justice to do the right thing. You know, one of the reasons I like appellate work is I like that sort of, it's almost kind of like true crime where you just you get the file and you're digging into it and diving into it and figuring out exactly what happened and maybe where things did go wrong and then figuring out the argument you're going to make. That's that's sort of it's like its own investigation. Right. And it's more of, I guess, I, that the appellate level, it's maybe less about, hey, you once you once said this quote. And I don't know where or how I heard it and I'm not going to get it right, but it was something like. The trial court is the place, you know, where where it's about the humans, where, you know, you care about the people and that at the appellate level, it's much it's about the facts of the case. It's much more about the law and the philosophy. And and I can see how you would gravitate to both both the human, you know, the psychology of it, despite what you say, you're an excellent behavioral uh, analyst. (laughs) (laughs) No, really. I mean, it's part of the attraction. But also philosophical too, right? That's a, a piece of who you are. It reminds me. So, like, I one of the things I'm absolutely curious about is the vulnerability you guys show. Before I had ever had a conversation with you or talked with you guys online, I knew about your son Brett when he was in the NICU. Alice, I knew, you know, the, some of the struggles of your immigrant parents. I knew about, I even knew about, you know, the farm that you grew up on in Atlanta beside Roswell High School. I used to drive by that as a middle yeah. schooler. I was like, yeah, I grew up in, I, my middle school days were in Marietta. So, Amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. So, but I knew so much and you guys, it, it, it's something I don't see in general, not just in the space of podcasting, but people who are in public facing positions sharing so much of their lives and sharing such, you know, intimate and things that a lot of people hide or could be deeply painful. Is, is that just you guys being you or is there, I mean, I, I think for me, it made you guys so much more human. Yeah. I mean, we're not like, we, we truly are not putting on an act that is just us, but, but I think it's so important that so many people are choosing to allow us into their lives. Everyone has limited time. You can listen to a million podcasts. And, you know, even though we may not be able to see each other, the fact that you're listening to my thoughts, my opinions, 
I think it, it warrants you understanding where those where that viewpoint was formed. Right. Uh, people laugh about, oh, my goodness, you talk about your kids so much. But truly, I'm learning more about the law and how I relate to what I do in the law and my role in kind of the judicial system by being a parent. It's because it's because it's where I am in my life right now. Right. We, we take lessons wherever we are in life. And by sharing where we were formed and how we were formed, I think can help people understand where our viewpoints come from. And also, here's the thing, the human experience can be incredibly lonely until you realize that there are so many more commonalities and there are things that divide us, right? I mean, Brett and I, like, just looking at us on the outside and knowing our backgrounds, we probably couldn't be two more different people. He is, like, my best friend. And if we didn't choose to, if we chose to only put ourselves into, you know, boxes that divided us, then we would miss out on a beautiful friendship, a beautiful work relationship, and like this amazing podcast experience that, you know, is, is truly been a, a highlight um, uh, for, for both of us in our lives. And so I think we, th- there's nothing that you really can lose by being vulnerable. I have learned that even in the courtroom. A lot of people think that by hiding your vulnerability, you show strength, but I think it's the opposite. By showing vulnerability, you are are choosing to take the first step to extend out and to reach out into the void and say like, hey, life is hard. Let's go through this together. Come back and join the three of us again next week, where we're going to talk more about their backgrounds and their histories, the things that made them who they are, the community that's been built around their podcast on being vulnerable and some of the value that comes from open debate, some of the challenges that exist in true crime podcasting, and what matters most to them. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. <laughs>